As we uh, come back together this morning, I suppose it'd be fair to John's lovely prayer for my family, uh, for artists and myself. I can tell you that I have not learned my lesson at all. Uh, usually in polls, at least in the secular world, uh, ministers only rank slightly higher in community respect than lawyers. So uh, wanting to continue my strain of picking jobs that are well-respected in the community, uh, I'm in the process of studying for my LSATs, uh, and Lord willing, uh, in October of this year, if I can pass those, um, start applying and see if uh, I can head into law school in the fall of 2022. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, as, as some of you know, uh, I took uh, some testing at the Behavioral Center uh, at George Fox. Some of the diagnoses that people would have expected turned out weren't true as far as my mental capacities, but, uh, but I am dyslexic, which should give me a little extra time on my LSAT tests and, I, and my reading comprehension. So I'm going to work the system. Um, but as many of you know, uh, I, I, the, the brilliance of the argument and the way in which Scripture lays out in wonderfully repetitive, nuanced, building on themes. Uh, again, I think the only illustration that I've heard that really captures the beauty of Scripture is to put it alongside a great piece of classical music, which has at its heart various themes and various tunes which uh, get brought up and then disappear and then are brought up later in another movement of that classical piece and yet now they're bigger or, or it's changed or a different instrument is now playing the same notes and it brings a different nuance. Scripture is that way and Paul as he writes Romans is saying the same thing in one sense more than once but he brings it up slightly differently and he uses other words and he uses another picture of God's power or glory or love to show us yet another nuance of the same truth, of the same rich promises of a covenant God who comes into this world to restore and renew that which he loved. And how can we not imagine the intimacy of the creative act when we read from Psalm 139 in our assurance of pardon that God is a God who does not do things by fiat and from a distance, but delights to come into his creation, even describing, as the psalmist does, the intimacy with which he put you and me together. So we have a God who is engaged, who is passionate and loves his creation and his people and desires to see it restored and renewed. And a great reality of that is the fellowship between God and humanity, which must be restored if we are to reflect His image rightly. And then as we've already read in Romans 8, there's going to need to be a restoration of that relationship between humanity to one another and to creation itself. Because creation groans in this current circumstance. It was never designed to work against us but always designed to work with us under our direction, bringing out its richness and its glory and its potential. Creation was designed for small sea creators to reflect the glory of the Creator. And we see it 
We long for it. This morning we continue in this end of chapter 8 with a triumphant, almost shouting from the rooftops, Paul summarizing everything that we've experienced, everything he's laid out, really from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 8. And so let's put the word in front of us now, starting at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? And what things they are that have gone before. These amazing things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it who to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to encourage us. Lord, may we celebrate the power of these words in the midst of times in our own lives that are difficult and trying. We ask, Lord God, that you would give strength and power to your people by your Spirit for your glory. We ask, Lord, that even now in the preaching of your word, that your beauty, your power, and your love would again be manifest to your people. And whatever, Lord, is not useful for those purposes in the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So again, I ask uh, somewhat rhetorically, what's the point in writing Romans. Why did Paul write it? And what we know is that primarily he did not write it in the negative to end up being a very complicated theological argument of disconnected theories about atonement, about the state of the Jewish people post-Messiahship, or a treatise in its opening chapters on the human condition. Paul did not write this book for those purposes. And yet, we've struggled with the fact that it often appears that Romans is a series of disjointed, very complicated, nuanced, or offensive theological arguments. The offensive argument that in parts of our world today, that sin is a thing. And Paul's pretty clear, writing to people in Rome, that sin is a thing. 
that immorality is a thing and that people are trying really, really hard to self-anesthetize and pretend that God doesn't exist by pursuing all manner of human delights to avoid doing business with God. And Paul has also written that people can use religion, even true religion, to try and avoid doing business with God. And that the Jewish folks in the church need to grapple with the fact that they have used the law, in fact, to avoid doing business with the true creator of the universe in such a way that it made them impossible for them to recognize the Messiah when the Messiah came. And we know how complicated that was is because the disciples are walking around with Jesus. And as we read today, Peter, who just verses before has said, you are the Messiah, when he hears about Messiahship, reinterpreted by Jesus through the lens of Isaiah, what do we find? Peter's like, not that Messiah. And Jesus rebukes him and says... Get behind me, accuser. Again, it didn't mean that he thought he was that guy that we call Satan, but this in this Jewish sense that that word we translate as Satan as being the accuser, the one who argues contrary to God's will and God's truth. The accuser comes before God in the book of Job to accuse, to lay a charge against Job. The deceiver, the accuser. Because the reality and the power of what God is doing in Christ and what the kingdom and the good news is about is so challenging for us to get our minds around. And yet what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is continuing the one argument. What is the reason that Paul wrote Romans? So that the church of God could be unified in doing the work of the kingdom. So that God's people could be unified in Christ, despite whether they started as Romans or they started as Jewish people, they could be unified in the work of the kingdom of God. And the great irony and the success of the accuser is that Romans is now effectively used as a way to split the church so that the work of the kingdom is pretty much put to the side until we can get orthodoxy done. That has been rather successful in Western Europe and the United States. And therefore, I want to encourage yet again the whole point of Romans is to give us the ability to know the resources we have in Christ by the Holy Spirit because of the love of the Father to be unified in the work of the kingdom. It is deep in its theology because the problem of human unity because of sin is complicated. The issues that divide us and the experiences and the life that we have lived There are reasons it's not easy for human beings to be unified. Certainly not under the banner of Christ. It is difficult to imagine. And we need deep theology to solve deep human problems. But as we're going to see as we move into 9, and particularly after we get into 12, 
13, 14, 15, we're going to find that the practical application of all of the great truths of Romans 8 is the church working out how to live together. Whether one is defined as weak or strong, the practical application is you can work it out. You can stay unified. You can see the kingdom move forward. So this morning, we will look at the power of election, its true significance in pulling us together. So what is election? And then election as covenant calling, covenant confidence, and covenant celebration. Election is at the heart of this passage. It has a very different meaning than most of the theological excursus that take it out of its context and make it primarily about my individual salvation. Is E.C. Bell elect not going to hell? Which really doesn't seem to be the purpose at all. I say that because it's sort of like this. If you are in prison and I come to you in prison and I say, I know that you are a great electrical engineer. And I know that you can use your gifts in the kingdom to bring electrification to all places in the world and people will have light and it's going to reduce crime rates and I'm going to use you to see God's kingdom go forward and to save lives through your gifts as an electrical engineer. And you tell me, yes, that's great. The problem is I'm doing life without parole because I killed somebody. And I say, no, it's okay, I'll take care of that. I've got one who can serve the time for you so that you can go do the work of the kingdom. What's the point? The point then, of course, is not getting out of jail. The point is you're being called to go do something. The be-all, end-all is not getting out of jail. That is simply a problem that has to be solved for you to go and do the thing that you were created to do. And yet we spend all of our time, for one reason or another, focusing on the getting out of jail part, not about what we do. And God's whole point of writing Romans through Paul is to say, here's what I'm going to do through you. There was a problem. You were in slavery to sin. Part of what Jesus does is address that issue so that you can go on about the business of the kingdom of God. But it's not so much about being elected to not go to hell. It's being elected to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's being elected to go and do good in the world, not because of your own goodness, but because of the goodness of Christ given to you. It is about God's people bringing salt and light. It is about creation no longer groaning. It is about humanity becoming unified around the love of God the Father and a common calling to glorify Him. Election in Romans 8 has almost nothing to do with your personal salvation and everything to do with the fact that Jesus had gotten you out of jail, but Abraham was elected to do what? 
to be a blessing to the nations. And so for a first century Jewish person reading about election, he's not going to think about it in the sense of 18th and 19th century debates in Western Europe about election and sovereignty and free will. He's going to read it in the context of Abraham being chosen out of Ur and designated to be a blessing to all the nations. And that to be elect means to carry the burden and the joy of what it means to be God's salt and light in and through the world. To be chosen to bring life and not death. To be a part of an agenda for restoration for the other. And to gather all those who are called to be a part of that. Great agenda. The covenant calling takes us back to Genesis 22. And the challenge in verse 32 where Paul alludes to Abraham. How does he do this? Well, this is, is Paul in the brilliance of it. How do, uh, sorry, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up. First century Jewish person who was called to do that for the good and for covenant Abraham. But God provided because Isaac was never going to be sufficient. Paul has used that same phrase, give them up three times before. And it was in the negative of giving sinners up to their own horrible, self-destructive and self-abusive devices turning them over in verse uh, 24 of chapter 1. God gave them up to their lusts. God gave them up to their desires. God gave them up to their foolishness. And here is the power of a sovereign God stepping up into human beings who would be given up to their own demise, and he gives his son up to break the power of sin and death in the world. Paul uses that phrase to emphasize the power and the largesse of the Father's gift of the Son. He gave him up to break the power. And Abraham was willing to give up Isaac for the covenant to continue, for the good and the promise. But of course, it would never have been sufficient. We can't read Genesis 2 in some, 22 in some sense of, is it just a test of faith? It's a test of faith in the covenant. In the covenant coming in and through Abraham. A covenant to be a blessing to all the nations and for God to bring the seed that would defeat and crush the head of the serpent. This is not just a personal drama of whether or not I will or will not offer one of my children up to a dangerous job that may take them overseas to be evangelists in a place where there's Ebola, and I wonder if that makes me like Abraham. At some point down the application trail, yes. But that's not the first emphasis. The first emphasis is will and is the covenant going to be fulfilled. And Abraham was never up to the job. Neither was Isaac. But he was elected to be the means by which the one who could and would would come into the world. 
He was elected by God, chosen to be the means of bringing blessing to all the nations. The power of Passover is in this passage. That's why Jesus is offered at that time of year. Again, what happens at Passover? All of the firstborn sons' heads are on the chopping block. Not firstborn daughters, not secondborn. Firstborn sons. The Isaacs. And without the blood of the Lamb barring the door, the judgment would have fallen on those firstborn, and they could not have borne it. It would have brought no healing. There was only one firstborn who could bring the healing. But it is through a difficult path, and this is Peter's problem, as he didn't understand, Paul seems to, the import and the power of Jesus preaching through Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 50 about the suffering servant, about the cost of ministry, about the cost of what it meant to be elect, to be the ones who bear the burden of the sin and brokenness of this world in order that those who can't because they don't have the Spirit aren't crushed by it, but have opportunity to turn and repent, that healing might be brought. This celebration in 31 through 39 of all of the wrong things is a celebration of the dignity and power of a God who redeems and restores through bearing the suffering and brokenness of the world. Abraham knew that because he and Sarah were were barren to begin with. It was a step of faith in believing in that. It was another step of faith to believe that God could and would complete his covenant promises even if the one God gave to Abraham was given back to God. And then in verse 36, we have Psalm 44, which is heavy. Because unlike all of the other passages to this point, the Psalm 44 is not a psalm of we were sinning and doing the wrong thing, and now we're suffering, and that's okay. We know that it's logical. We know that it's you know, uh, just, but please redeem us anyway which is a great psalm to pray. It's really the only psalm I can pray. But Psalm 44 is an amazing prayer where it's like, look, Lord, we were following you. We were truthful. We were following the covenant. We were doing what the law required, and we're still being crushed. We're still being scorned. We're still being ignored by the world. That's the covenant calling. That's why we were elect. To rejoice and exhibit the character of life of a God who restores and renews the world. Yes, you had to get out of jail to do your job. But you weren't elected just to get out of jail. You were elected to use the God-given skills and talent and character and community you were given to be a part of following Jesus in his covenant fulfillment of being a blessing to all the nations. Which then is going to require a fair amount of covenant confidence because I look around at the accuser and he's very good 
and I feel accused, and it's easy for me to slip into the seat, uh, the seat of the accuser and look at all the problems in the world and be pretty sure that they're insurmountable. And so the whole idea of the whole place being burned up and me going to a celestial city is really appealing, hence the attractiveness of platonic thought. But that isn't the reality. So we're going to need a lot. So what do we get? We get, well, verse 31. Uh, what can we say uh, to these things? That if God is for us, who can be against us? In my flesh, everybody? Anybody? And yet, if God is, since God is, who can stand against us? I've got to have eyes to see it. I don't understand this new playing field. It's different than the one I understood about security and peace and comfort and success and blessing. I don't really have the eyes to see and understand how the new math works. But the new math, the true math, the deeper math, In C.S. Lewis's words, the deeper magic, written far below our human understanding and the way the world seems to work, that which actually shaped the world, that power tells me that the one who created it is now for me and for you because of his covenant faithfulness. And we cannot help but be a blessing to the nations when we follow Jesus. Verse 34, Christ stands before the Father advocating for us to get all the resources we need, advocating for the Father to give us the strength to stand up and to give an account for ourselves when the pressures of the world crush us on a domestic or a uh, socially uh, more grand scale. God sends his son and then recalled his son to be our advocate, giving us the spirit that we might have the power to live out what Christ is and was and shall be in the world. Verse 39, and again, uh, God's love is something that needs to be meditated on in a way that removes it from some of the sentimentality that I often rail against. But for this verse to tell us In the midst of everything that's just been said, no height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. How I long to be able to understand that. To not feel God's love to be dependent upon my circumstances at the moment or my expectations of what future I might see but to know that nothing, as I follow God in Christ by the Spirit, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not even death, which is one of the things that we have a tendency to fear. What are we willing to do to stay alive? To stay relatively comfortable and well thought of. Human beings tragically, are willing to do a lot of very unsightly things. 
God's people have been tempted more than once to approve of and to participate by omission and commission in some pretty horrific things to stay alive, to stay comfortable, to stay well thought of in their neighborhood, to not be ostracized. Lastly, verse 37, in this covenant confidence, more than conquerors. You realize Paul is writing this to the church in Rome, who on a regular basis showed its power by forcing the disrobed of their armor and power, slaves and defeated enemies and chieftains and kings, through the streets of Rome as conquerors. And so when Jesus and Paul talk about parading all of the defeated enemies, making a spectacle of them, the Romans are going, we know exactly what that looks like. And how on earth can you say what a radical notion it is that you think you are more than conquerors when you get lit up like tiki torches in Nero's uh, garden at night? When you keep getting sacrificed and beaten and abused, you think you're conquering? I'll show you what conquering looks like. See, we've made this individual to feel humiliated in the streets of Rome. And Paul says, we are more than conquerors because turns out the game gets played on the other side of death. Turns out what you can do to me this side doesn't have much impact on what happens for the rest of my existence. Turns out you were only playing in the first quarter, but there's three more. And they're going to be far more delightful as we run the score up. God's power means that we are more than conquerors. And if Paul can write that to the church in Rome, how much more so to the churches today, to have the strength and covenant confidence that the God who did not withhold his own son certainly will not let us be humiliated by living like his son. Not eternally, not ultimately, and not in any way that counts. Which then leads Paul to celebrate. And the funny thing is that this is really a joyous, upbeat. The rhythm of this, the way that Paul strings these words together, he's in a good mood. He is excited. He has reached a crescendo. He is thrilled to bring us all the way through the first eight chapters and say, this is how wonderful it truly is. This is how magnificent and powerful our God is. Here's how secure your position is. Here's how nothing can separate you from the love of God. And he is overjoyed. What does joy look like to you? What is the thing that makes you joyful? Is this an image that says, yes, I can't wait to see death humiliated by our corporate willingness to lean in, to be shamed by the world, to love all of the wrong people, to care for them in a way in which Christ did, to touch lepers, socially and diagnosed medically 
to be willing to be associated with. To be compassionate for. Because it appears that that's really the only place that joy, a joy that gives one the ability to write all of these weighty things in the space of eight verses and to celebrate it. It's not that Paul's masochistic anymore than Jesus was masochistic. This isn't because these things are fun. It's not because they make us better in the sense of more spiritually worthy people. It's simply what needs to be done. Because as we read in Romans 1, sin and death are messing things up. And to really think that we are going to be a part of Jesus' work of cleaning that filth out of the world, and we won't do it until He returns, but even partially participating in the work of God's covenant faithfulness in and through the world, if we imagine we might experience that while avoiding Romans 8, Paul wants to make sure we are comforted and well aware and leaning in together, knowing that these things cannot be avoided, but they can and are joy. Joy because of what God is doing in and through. Because each time the enemy throws its weight into the church and the church responds with the love of Christ, the enemy loses. It's already defeated, but it loses one more battle. Its power diminishes that much more. Which is why we can be joyful. Not happy, not light, not pretending that it doesn't matter, but that weightiness, recognizing that the weight of glory, the weight of glory cannot be trite. It cannot be easy. It will feel a weight around you. But that's why Jesus says his burden is light. You will feel the weight of glory, the weight of being called to be Christ's younger brothers and sisters. You'll feel the weight. But isn't it lighter than death? Isn't it lighter than the knowledge of having made compromises with the accuser just to make it through another day and keep our head down? We know that that never ends well. And Paul loves us enough not to give us the notion that it will. So what's the encouragement? I, that it's worth it. That nothing you're going through is pointless. That none of it will be lost. That God will redeem and restore and renew everything. That nothing can sell us, uh, separate us from the love of God. That it's all worth it. And the accuser will tell you again and again 
the pains of being unified in Christ and serving the other who often doesn't appreciate it is pointless, is useless, and is futile. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, reminds us of what God says. All of it, all of it is redeemed. All of it is worth doing. All of it in Christ is victory and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would like this to come to an end sooner rather than later. We do look anxiously for your return. We do pray for a swift end to suffering and death and pain and victimhood. We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, may we, by your Spirit, continue in the small ways that we are, in the ways that you will lead us to be your hands and feet, to be your covenant faithfulness in and through this world, your chosen people to love and care for a restored world that you built. In Jesus' name, amen.